hello and welcome to Akathisia Stories, a podcast co-production of MIST and Studio C. MIST, the medication-induced suicide prevention and education foundation in memory of Stuart Dolan, is a unique nonprofit organization dedicated to honoring the memory of Stuart and other victims of akathisia by raising awareness and educating the public about the dangers of akathisia. MIST aims to ensure that people suffering from akathisia symptoms are accurately diagnosed so that needless deaths are prevented. The foundation advocates truth and disclosure, honesty in reporting, and legitimate drug trials. On this episode, we hear from 24-year-old Marcello, who, prior to being severely injured by a prescribed antidepressant, was a healthy and happy college sophomore at the new school in New York City. Just days after starting the prescription, he suffered a catastrophic adverse reaction to the medication that led to akathisia, inappropriate polypharmacy, and years of suffering. The experience for the sufferer during all of this is nightmarish. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable because you know what's happening. You know that there's incredible injury. And you also know that there's likely no help. We also hear from Marcello's mother, Lisa, who has watched her son suffer the devastating effects of akathisia for more than two years. What it looks like from the outside is like um, a horror show. It's unfathomable. It, you know, it, he's a very normal looking, functioning young man. And suddenly he's rocking, grimacing, in torturous pain as though as though someone were torturing him i know that people with akathisia use the word torture a great deal and it's apt we'll have marcello and lisa's full story in a moment mist would like to thank you for listening to this monthly podcast which we're pleased to provide along with all of mist's educational materials free of charge after today's podcast Please check out our latest video, which was released February 23rd and available on YouTube. Many people are unaware of suicide risk factors. Knowing these risks can save countless lives. The collaborative public health video breaks new ground, given that it marks the first time akathisia and medication-induced suicidality are mentioned in a suicide prevention video. When we recognize the symptoms of akathisia and are aware of the various drugs that can cause it, we can help reduce akathisia suffering and avoidable deaths. We encourage you to share the video and this podcast, as well as to take our free accredited course at mist.learnupon.com and consider supporting us through a tax-deductible contribution at mist.co. That's M-I-S-S-D C-O. And now my interview with Lisa and Marcello. We spoke in January over Zoom. Marcello, you're now well over two years off the drugs and still deep in the struggle. And Lisa, you've been witness to all of it. Uh, Before we go back in time and talk about how all of this came to be, can you tell me what life is like today as you both deal with the akathisia that has afflicted Marcello? Sure. So um, at this point, uh, a little over two and a half years in, it's it's still very much a holding pattern of uh, you know myriad symptoms daily constantly um, as well as an undercurrent of 
of what I can only explain as brain injury. You know, it's so abstract that to try to, to, to describe some of this stuff, to put it into words almost doesn't work, but I experience akathisia on a constant basis. And uh, every day is, is a challenge that I never could have imagined prior to this injury. And before I have you comment on that as well, Lisa, Marcello, are you experiencing, like, like is each week different from the last in terms of the sort of panoply of symptoms that you have and the severity and, and that sort of thing? So every day is mostly the same, which is unbelievable on a constant basis. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, what about your day to day? Well, uh, I suppose it starts out with how bad is he today, which is a terrible way to start your day. As he describes windows and waves, I see windows and waves, but what I see often doesn't matter because I will, if I were to presume that, well, it's a little bit better today, he's maybe cooking something or um, taking care of the plants. It does not unfortunately reflect that he feels any better, which is a, a very, it's one of the trick, many, many tricky things about akathisia. I can't make any assumptions or assessments, although I'm very, very glad for a day that even looks better. You know, if it looks a little better, great, you know. But every day it begins with a certain apprehension, a uh, kind of measuring of the, of the temperature. How is he? And sometimes it's quite visible that there's a lot of pacing, a lot of clenching. The movements can be more dire from one day to the next. And then every once in a while, there's a window. I count them like pearls. They're very precious where uh, there have been a couple of times in the past year where we've actually driven up to a mountaintop or gone someplace out into nature, or he's been able to cook up a wonderful meal. I mean, there, there are moments. And it's interesting that you're sort of witnessing more of a variation day to day. But as you said, Marcello, it's, you know, every day kind of in many ways seems the same. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, the difference between severe and less severe mm -hmm. is not necessarily obvious to an onlooker. Um, you know, most of this is an internal show, which makes it all the more, you know, difficult to sort of get a, a you know, have people gauge around you what's going on. You know, I'm sure many people on some of my worst days with akathisia would look at me and likely say, you know, he, he seems okay. So to back up then, Marcello, you're 24 years old, and just three years ago, you decided to take some time off from school, do some traveling, and kind of figure out what to do next. And you began having what you called garden variety anxiety and some trouble getting moving again after taking the time off and thought it would be beneficial to see a psychiatrist. So if you could pick up the story from there and give us that backstory. Yeah, I think that pretty much covers, covers it. I just spent some time traveling. And like many people my age felt some trepidation and anxiety about what was next and, um, you know, sort of had trouble getting going again and thought that it would be beneficial to at least see a psychiatrist with an open mind. I'm not someone who has in the past been 
you know, so open to the idea of medication. Um, I think seeing a lot of my friends have, have uh, success with medication sort of uh, motivated me to at least try, try it. Um, because I think we, we, we think that there's no, there's no harm in trying, right? There's no harm in trying an antidepressant. If you don't like it, you get off. And you also told me that at the time, all of your friends had either been helped by psychiatry or were on a psych med and, and doing well. And in fact, some of your friends were becoming rich at a very young age. I mean, one in particular. So you were only seeing positive outcomes. I was only seeing positive outcomes. Yeah. Yep. So what, I know that you were prescribed an SNRI and had what you call a paradoxical reaction to that about 10 days in. And from there, it was just this spiral of being polydrugged to try to suppress the akathisia and the damage that was occurring from the medications. Yeah. The, the first drug that I was prescribed was Cymbalta, which, as you said, is an, is an SNRI, um, so similar to an SSRI works on norepinephrine as opposed to serotonin or in addition to serotonin. So you missed a dose and, and how did you feel when you missed the dose? What was the first? Right. So the, the first indication that I knew something was terribly wrong was I had been hiking with a friend and I had missed a dose of the Cymbalta and took a dose. And this was, this was just before we went on a hike and, and uh, had thought I'd caught some kind of insect bite or, or something along the trail, vertigo, extreme, extreme nausea, extreme dizziness. Uh, it felt like it, it felt like acute poisoning. It felt like I was being killed by something, um, completely, completely different from any symptom of anxiety that I'd ever experienced. Um, so that was immediately ruled out for me. And I think you mentioned an inner terror. Yeah. The, again, this, this subjective component of akathisia that people talk about as terror um, takes on many forms. There's obviously terror caused by what is happening, caused by not, not being able to understand what's happening. And there is inherent terror, chemical terror created by the injury itself. Like I said, completely different from anything I'd ever experienced with anxiety, mm -hmm. just not comparable. And you went to the hospital and you were diagnosed there with heat exhaustion. Right. right. They offered him an Ativan and uh, sent him home. He came back to L.A. and his psychiatrist switched him to Prozac. There was no mention of akathisia at this point. She switched him to Prozac. He was on Prozac for two weeks uh, and then he experienced another episode. Do you want to talk about yeah, that? Well, yeah. I should mention that the hospital made no effort to investigate any medications that I was on. So that was, that was overlooked initially. Was that in your mind? Truthfully at the time, no. Mm -hmm. I don't think it was until the effects of the adverse reaction had cleared somewhat. I could tell that something was very wrong and very different in the weeks following, which is why I, you know, in hindsight, stupidly agreed to get on Prozac um, at the suggestion of my psychiatrist who didn't know anything about what was going on. Um, and that is when I noticed textbook akathisia for the first time was just a few doses into Prozac. And so at that time, was that the terminology that you had or was it in retrospect akathisia? 
I, you know, I think I had done some research on my own, just fishing around, trying to make sense of what had happened. There is far less medical literature on adverse reactions than there is on akathisia, it seems. So I, I, I can't remember exactly. I think I found the word akathisia before I had uh, had the extremely noticeable akathisia reaction to Prozac. I remember the timeline a little bit differently, and or at least in, in terms of my, because I remember that first time I heard that word. And uh, we were in Portland and Marcello had an interview uh, for college the next day. And he experienced again, a kind of inner and outer restlessness, terror. And as he described it, a kind of anxiety that was a hundred times worse than anything he had ever experienced that felt like anxiety before. I called the psychiatrist and I remember this clearly. She said, gee, this sounds like akathisia. That was the first time I heard the word akathisia. Then we went back um, to see her in LA. She prescribed Xanax. I wasn't privy to the discussion. Um, he went on a trip, a hiking trip. Again, um, was not himself, felt just terrible. And, you know, this was hiking had always been his, his joy and uh, his happy place. Came back and then we had a family meeting with the psychiatrist. And um, at that point, I was in full blown akathisia. It was, yes, he was. It was incredibly obvious what was going on. Mm -hmm. Yet going to the psychiatrist with this, we were, you know, essentially gaslit, which is, again, not uncommon. Um, you know, you hear this is your underlying anxiety coming up. This is, um, you know, there's no way that this could be coming from the medication is what we were repeatedly told by. She told us we could not, he could not get akathisia from antidepressants, um, that that was very, very, very unlikely that they came from antipsych. You could get it from an antipsychotic, not an antidepressant. She um, said that what he was experiencing was likely somatic. This was the same woman, though, yes. who had said over the phone, gee, this sounds like akathisia? Yes. So to her mind, it sounded like it, but it wasn't akathisia. Exactly. Or maybe she thought about it some more. But yeah, this was the same person who said it sounds like akathisia. She said it was not akathisia. It was somatic, suggested we get a second opinion. Um, while we were trying to wait and find a person to get a second opinion, she was still prescribing uh, medications for him, for the movements. So at this point, Marcello, you say that you had done some research, you had familiarized yourself with akathisia, had identified your symptoms with that condition. Uh, Lisa, what was your sense and your sort of intuition at this point in terms of what was afflicting your son? You were getting this sort of contradictory information from the medical profession. I assume that you were probably doing a bit of your own research. Or I was start just just starting. Yeah, just starting. I knew that something was very wrong. I have, uh, I still have videotapes because I would tape it, tape him in order to call um, the the psychiatrist or 
when we left her, we called our family, an, an old family doctor. I sent him the tapes. What it looks like from the outside is like um, a horror show. It's unfathomable. It, you know, it, he's a very normal looking, functioning young man. And suddenly he's rocking, grimacing uh, in, in, in torturous pain as though, as though someone were torturing him. I know that people with akathisia use the word torture a great deal and it's apt. So at this point in time, I knew something was frighteningly wrong we began what I now consider to be a Kafkaesque journey towards a diagnosis. And before we go there, I wanted to just back up a little bit and ask you what your initial reaction was to your son being prescribed the initial SNRI. Did you have any concerns or did you kind of share the same sense of confidence that he had that this probably would do something positive? I am not someone who... Uh, is prone to going to a medication first. I felt uh, that he could uh, heal this, what he was going through, through exercise, through diet, through supplements, through therapy. I did not think he was mentally ill. I thought what he was going through was in some sense um, age appropriate. He was becoming a man. And he was asking questions that a lot of young men ask, who am I? Where do I fit? What's next? Well, and, and prior to taking the medication, you write, Lisa, that Marcello had never gotten into a physical fight, never had a suicidal urge, and had always had a warm, close, and playful relationship with his father, who slept in his room now, to keep watch. Yes. And loved him more than life itself. Yes. Could either of you address the question, you know, kind of elaborate on the sort of pre-drug times and the pre-akathisia times in terms of characterizing the person that Marcello was at that time? He was funny, charming, original, outspoken, said what he thought. He had a lot of friends. He was adventurous. He climbed mountains. He backpacked through Europe on his own. He was a night sky photographer. He would go up, to, when we um, were living in uh, Oregon, he would go up to the top of a mountain at three in the morning to get a good shot of the Milky Way. Um, he was very open about his emotions. He was someone that I could talk to. He was not closed off creative, loved to cook, loved music, seriously loved, loved, loved music, which is so painful to think now that music to him sounds like cacophony. Charming, honest, just a, a great kid. Very, very popular, you know, uh, very charismatic. From my perspective, I had my health and now I don't. You know, akathisia and, and, and medication injury leaves you with almost nothing to give. 
for yourself or for others. Um, I can't imagine going through this as a parent, going through this having to care for someone else um, because you are unavailable because 100% of your energy goes into making it through the next hour. So I think in that way, I think had this happened to me at any other point in my life, I likely would have died. I think because I was already taking time off and was in a transitional period, I think that it gave me enough distance to be able to say, okay, I'm not in a job that I love. I'm not, I don't have kids. I'm not in school right now. Um, I think there's so much loss precipitated by akathisia and, and because of this injury that, that that would have taken it over the top. So in a way, I think, I think uh, if this had to happen at some point, you know, this is, this is the time. And it seems to me that this period that you've been living through these past few years has both strengthened and been a great strain on your relationship. I don't know that I would categorize it that way. I can't imagine something more difficult um, for an individual or for a family. So yeah, there's strain, of course, but also I think, I think there's now more trust maybe that uh, in the beginning, maybe there wasn't when, you know, my parents were hearing the complete opposite from what I was saying uh, in total desperation, hearing the complete opposite from basically the entire medical establishment, um, which does trickle down to doctors, which trickles down to families. So I think there's, there's more trust, maybe not, not too much good, <laughs> not too much good to come out of this. Yeah. Yeah. He is the strongest person I know. I don't, I can't feel what he feels. There have been times when I've had um, a completely sleepless night. I've had moments, I'm trying to say, that I feel I can identify with uh, being a, unable to control your thoughts. Uh, I can identify with that and how maddening that is, maddening. I can't identify with the pain. I know he's in pain, but I have such, having had just an inkling, maybe a, a one one thousandth of what he feels, I know he is the strongest person I know. I know that I could not, I couldn't do it. You know, I just wouldn't have the strength to do it, to get up every morning and, you know, go through something that hard. Has it strengthened our relationship? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I want to have you each talk about a metaphor or an analogy that you've used. Marcello, you told me in the previous conversation that we had preparing for this interview that the experience of the experience of you going on this medication and having had what happened to you is like a Band-Aid on a scrape, and it gives you cancer. And Lisa, you wrote in your article for Mad in America that in the simplest terms, you could think of it like a peanut allergy. So I was wondering if you could each elaborate on those metaphors. Sure. Well, um, you know, it's no secret that these drugs are being given to people for off-label reasons, for, um, you know, everyday stress. 
you know, every day human experiences are being pathologized and people are being handed these mm -hmm. extremely powerful medications that do not come without risks. So I guess my analogy with the scrape on your leg, putting on a Band-Aid and having your leg fall off from the Band-Aid uh, feels apt because I did not go on these drugs for serious issues. Um, you know, not until, you know, pretty recently, these drugs were reserved for the severely mentally ill. Um, and only in the past few decades have all of these off-label um, uses been discovered by the pharmaceutical industry. But um, people are definitely being inappropriately prescribed um, and, and not, not at all given proper informed consent. I, and I thought the peanut allergy was quite effective in the way that you laid it out. I think I came up with that because of, I was faced with my friends, most of whom are on something, or their husbands or their kids are on something, um, saying, how could this be? How could this be? Because I'm fine with my Lexapro. I'm fine with my Lamictal. How could a drug that, uh, or class of drugs that I'm fine with produce this kind of result. To say there was skepticism is an understatement, even among our friends and family. So what I, the peanut allergy simply uh, came to mind because most people are okay with peanuts. But some, if you're allergic to them, if your body cannot metabolize a peanut, you could die. So it was just a simpler way of, of explaining to people that we're, we're all different. We're genetically different. And uh, one person might do fine. And another person, for, for another person, the same um, medication could be a poison. I have to interject that that is one avenue to try to understand this with. I think it's overly reductive and simplistic just because of the fact that the drugs are inherently toxic to anyone. Um, you know, a, a desired effect from these medications, a numbing effect, which is, you know, the, the best case scenario that one could hope from one of these medications is a neurotoxic effect. Um, you know, it, it, the, the peanut allergy doesn't really work for me because, you know, uh, Peanuts are organically evolved and, and have evolved alongside us. And these medications are chemicals that were created in the lab. Yeah. We talked a little bit earlier about the tapering and you did it in a matter of days. And the day after the last eighth of the pill, the outward symptoms started to appear. I have here in my notes that there were purposeless, repetitive movements as if you'd been set on fire and weepiness, pacing, gruesome images and sounds in your mind and impulsive suicidal urges you'd never experienced before. Does that set of symptoms characterize any given day over the last several years? To some degree, yeah, definitely. Um, the beginning was far more intense, you know, to say that I am, I'm not out of the woods. I'm not out of the woods by any means. Um, but the, the first few months off the medication were unthinkable. The only, the only comparison I can really draw is like a bomb went off in my body and, you know, shrapnel is tearing through 
vital organs. And uh, But unlike a bomb, it never stops. I mean, a bomb explodes and you, de- exactly. and you deal with the consequences. Exactly. But... It, it is a bomb that detonates perpetually, um, in, even in the absence of the medication, which is, to anyone who's trying to understand this, puzzling, because that doesn't make sense, right? It, that, that it goes against everything we want to think about either a toxin or a medication that once it clears the system, you're good. Um, and this, this breaks all of those preconceptions that I, that I had initially when I thought, oh, I could just try this drug and, you know, if it doesn't go well, I'll stop it and that'll be it. And eventually you started to develop strong chemical sensitivities as well. Yeah. Again, not uncommon. Um, and, and definitely something that I would have, uh, been highly skeptical of before this. Had someone else told you? Yeah. Had someone else said, oh, you know, I have extreme chemical reactivity. It sounds hokey, but it's, uh, (laughs) it's very real. And what forms does that take? I mean, are we talking dryer sheets and perfume and detergents, dryer sheets? Uh, you know, when we were trying to find a place to live, um, after moving, um, new buildings, new building materials would, would basically exacerbate, uh, the feeling of being acutely poisoned to a point where I literally could not tolerate the environment. Um, and, uh, it's, 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 I've, I've come to understand that it's all part of mast cell activation. Um, and that there is an innate response in the nervous system to an insult like this, that basically activates you know, these systems that are usually dormant, that usually, uh, that usually are not hyperreactive. Same thing with light sensitivity and sound sensitivity. It's, it's all just compensatory, uh, you know, your brain and nervous system trying to figure out what the hell just happened. What about sitting in front of a computer like you're doing now? It's, it's not easy. (laughs) You know, I recognize how crucially important it is to, to talk about this openly and publicly. Um, and uh, so there's the, the motivation there overrides the, the huge, huge discomfort of trying to stay still and, and, and sit in front of a computer. But um, yeah, it, it, it makes everything uh, unthinkably difficult. And there are, there are so many things that are impossible with this. Yeah. Lisa, you started to mention earlier the Kafka-esque journey towards proper diagnosis and treatment. Yes. I don't know how much you want to get into the sort of blow by blow on that, but is there something, is there some sort of summary that you might? Let let me see if I can do it quickly. (laughs) Let me see if I remember it. Uh, Psychiatrist number two thought it was somatic. Psychiatrist number three looked at him for five minutes and said, oh my God, this is akathisia. And you better do something about it quickly because akathisia is a pain like no other. And um, people with akathisia are highly prone to suicide. This was the first psychiatrist, uh, the first doctor who understood it, who recognized it, who validated what he was going through. So there uh, there was a horror on my husband's and my part that, oh my God, it is this, but also a sense of validation. Where did we go next? Um, We went to an integrative psychiatrist who treated him with uh, supplements, but unfortunately, his system was such a mess from the akathisia that the supplements made his condition a hundred times worse. 
she recommended um, someone who was microdosing medication, thought we should see her. This woman was only seeing patients at a drug rehab where um, she was the psychiatrist. We went to the drug rehab. It was run by graduate patients. In other words, it was run by people in recovery. And, and that didn't work out. The place reeked of Clorox. It was frightening. And also just full of smoke. Totally inappropriate. Totally I mean. wrong. We, we took him home. So we were uh, at a point of, we were becoming a little desperate. We saw another integrative psychiatrist who said that pot would be fine. He had an almost psychotic experience on the, on the pot. And uh, then he made a suicide attempt and uh, wound up at a very a leading hospital in Los Angeles. No one could agree on the diagnosis, but they all wanted to uh, give him something something. They couldn't agree on which med, but they all wanted to give him something because that's what you do in a 72 hour hold. You can't do therapy. You want the patient to go home with the proper medication and the plan. So he went to a place uh, that, that agreed to treat him without meds. The only problem there was he was required to sit still in group therapy and he was required to get to group therapy on time. Now he has this thing called non 24, which means he goes to sleep an hour later and gets up an hour later every single day. So we couldn't, he couldn't be awake for his group therapy sessions. Plus he couldn't sit still because he had akathisia. Plus he did not feel he belonged in that setting because he had a neurological as opposed to a psychological disorder and no amount of discussing his feelings was going to help him. So he ran. Yeah. Uh, the, the experience for the sufferer during all of this is nightmarish. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable because you know what's happening. You know that there's incredible injury and you also know that there's likely no help. You know, you, you want to go along with what everyone else is saying in order to not seem non-compliant, basically, um, because that's the last thing uh, anyone anyone wants to to uh, have have your your family believe of you um, when when every single person along the way is saying there is a fix here it is it's a drug that causes akathisia or there's a fix. It's an expensive inpatient treatment program for recovering addicts. Um, and all the while, you know that this is absolutely absurd, but the only other alternative is to lose your support structure entirely. Yeah. So I know at one point during this time, you were told, Lisa, that your son's blood was on your hands if you didn't commit him to a mental hospital. Yes. You're also dealing with friends friends and family who cannot understand what's going on. Um, Marcello had a best friend who was extremely concerned for him um, and thought that he belonged in a hospital. He knew he had suicidal ideation because Marcello was communicating that. And there's no way that a lay person can understand the difference between ideation, which is 
um, a voluntary, product. voluntary versus involuntary. Okay. Is, is the is the key point of understanding mm -hmm. there that for whatever reason people on the outside of this experience be it friends or uh, or anyone who doesn't know about akathisia or know that the know about the harm that's being caused here by these medications cannot seem to fathom the fact that this causes suicidality um, it's imposed it's it's it doesn't belong to you. It's caused entirely by the immense suffering precipitated by akathisia. Um, it's caused by the uh, the neurotoxic effect of being injured this way. It's it's unthinkable. So when he ran, he ran to Oregon uh, where he grew up, and I uh, I remember him. Uh, he texted me and he said, "Oh." the air is clear, I can breathe. Maybe I'll have a shot of healing here. The same time uh, the hospital advised us, the, the one he had run from, uh, to seek an intervention. They knew someone in the Midwest who would come out and get him in a car or on a plane and get him back to uh, UCLA, where they were ready, would be ready with a court order to medicate. This was for my husband and me, I think the hardest, uh, most critical, most profound decision we ever had to make. Who do we believe? Do we believe the experts who felt that uh, it was dangerous not to medicate him or do we believe our son? And we chose to believe our son. And we chose to support whatever course of healing he wanted to take because he was at this time 22 years old. He had not seriously hurt himself and he had never hurt anyone else. He did not suffer from delusions. Uh, he was not, he did not meet the criteria for someone who was incapable of, of uh, reason. And so that's what we decided to do. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is uh, we are, I'm in a support group on, online for families, for caregivers of people with akathisia. And one of the key um, questions that people have is, who do I believe? Do I believe the doctor or do I believe my child? And I am an advocate for believing your child believing the person who is going through it. Because for one thing, the doctors really don't know much about akathisia at all. And at some point, uh, he's a human being, you know, and the idea of forcing medication, which is the FDA itself deems to be dangerous, forcing someone to take that, I think robs some of a very basic uh, dominion over their mind and their body, and we couldn't do it. 
Is there anything that you want to still bring up in terms of the chronology that you were talking about, Lisa, or is there anything you feel like you didn't address? Well, I would say that we are still hopeful that continuing research will at least help us uh, have informed consent, true informed consent, which I wish that Marcello had had. And um, I still remain optimistic that there will be treatments for akathisia. Likely they won't come from drug company trials and studies. They won't necessarily be medications. Um, I know he, he feels differently about this, but you know, call me crazy. I'm gonna keep hoping. Um, and I also have faith in time. I have faith that the human brain will heal. And I have an incredible amount of faith uh, in my son's strength to persevere one day at a time. Marcello, do you share that faith? I know and believe that the only way to get to the other side of this is through it. I know that there's no quick fix. I know that there's no drug fix. I know that there's no operation procedure um, that's likely to fix this level of damage. Um, I think giving your body and your brain as much distance from the toxins that cause the injury in the first place is first line. That is first line treatment. Um, and it's, it's an unsatisfying answer for anyone in this, uh, to say the least, but that's, that's what I believe in because I know that there is no, no immediate fix. I think it's important to recognize that symptoms of akathisia can and often do look like symptoms of a mental illness. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's an incredibly important distinction to make because to the person experiencing akathisia, it is not, it, 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 to compare this to any form of anxiety or, or, uh, or depression or darkness is, is it's, it's in, incomparable. Um, but um, unfortunately on paper, a lot of the symptoms can uh, sort of overlap with those of mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is likely causing a huge number of people to be either misdiagnosed mm -hmm. or entirely gaslit to their deaths. Yeah, that's true. Marcello is committed to raising awareness about this cause and reversing what he says has become deeply ingrained into the zeitgeist and the perception that being on a psych med is trendy, which he says is quite prevalent on social media and among people his age. Lisa, a successful and prolific playwright, is currently working on a play about this experience, which you can hear more about in the podcast extra available at studiocchicago.com slash akathisia stories. There, you can also find a link to the new missed video that I mentioned earlier in the episode. You've been listening to the Akathisia Stories podcast. We'll have another episode next month. If you'd like to share your own story for this podcast, please email studio.c.chicago at gmail.com and please share this podcast, rate it, and subscribe. 
I'm Andy Miles, and I'd like to thank Lisa and Marcello for their time and candor. And I'd like to thank you for listening. <laughs>